Welcome back to Our Soul, a podcast by Faith Choice Ohio, Ohio's faith voice for choice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Our Soul. Um, I warned you last time that our podcasts are going to be a little bit different for um, a while. And so today I am not here with Terry, um, but I'm actually here with somebody who um, I work with in my other job. I know I've, I've mentioned this a little bit on the podcast and it's definitely come up in like trainings and, and stuff like that. But um, for those of you who don't know, um, I also work for um, If When How. Um, as a development coordinator. And so today um, I have the pleasure of being with Gerald Hayes, um, our senior movement building director at If When How. And I'm so excited to talk with you today, Gerald. Um, so I would love if you could just introduce yourself um, to our listeners and just let us know a little bit about what you do. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Kelly. So my name is Gerald Hayes. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Senior Movement Building Director at If When How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. And it is, this is, this job is like one of my most favorite jobs I've ever been able to have. Um, and in particular at one of my favorite organizations. Uh, so I talk about If When How as being part of my reproductive justice origin story, in part because I found them when I was in law school uh, as, a, as part of the student chapter. And then I had the great privilege of being a summer legal intern um, for the organization. And it's always been a place I've wanted to come back to. And so when the opportunity came up and I was able to, um, to join the organization full time, it's been really, you know, really in incredible. Um, and in part because the work that I get to do um, in movement building is really focused on our organizing and training uh, and the ways that we try to mobilize law students, legal fellows, and professional lawyers um, in the service of reproductive justice. And so helping to use uh, the law and the legal profession as a tool um, of, of actually advancing reproductive justice as opposed to being a tool of oppression. Yeah, that I, I it's interesting to like, um, be the a person who works in these these two different organizations that are like both working to use something that has often been harmful to other people um, and and you know like showing that there are people who want to support and want to um, actually help people have reproductive freedom because like us at Faith Choice Ohio you know we're always like um, you know most people who are religious are also pro-choice. Like it is the, the few um, who are loud and um, obnoxious and um, who are antis. And so it's, it's just like a great to be in this place where like we are kind of reshaping the narrative and also equipping people to do better and um, be better for um you know, the, the overall movement. And I really appreciate, like, um, I think if when how, at least for me was the first place that I would heard, um, you know, in other places they call it like fields, um, or like, uh, you know, advocacy departments or whatever, but like hearing it as movement building is different. And so, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like how, how you see movement building specifically, because I think like that kind of perspective in itself is um, interesting and a different way of seeing how we get to the future. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you can think about movement building and think about organizing. 
And I think, you know, for most people, when they think of organizing, it's it's really either focused on people who may not have as much power and helping them to sort of leverage their collective power. Um, and the way that we do organizing is a little bit different in that way, in part because of who we are generally organizing. So primarily we're organizing people who have a level of privilege. Um, so if you go to law school, that means that you have graduated from high school, that means you've graduated from college, that means you've been able to find resources in order to finance. Um, law school is not cheap, I can tell you, because of the loans that I'm still paying off. Um, <laughs> law school is not cheap. And so we're inherently, you know, organizing folks who have a level of privilege. But what we're trying to do is help them to leverage that privilege in a very specific way. Um, and for us, it's really to think about the, the law in particular, um, and recognizing the ways that um, the law has been used as a tool of oppression, especially on identity-related issues, and in particular um, on reproductive health rights and justice issues, and really get folks um, who do have this privilege to see, you know, how are you leveraging that privilege? How are you even acknowledging um, the amount of privilege that we have because of our profession, and using the resources that we have, using the influence that we have using, you know, the access to power that we have for a very particular um, uh, result, which is to really, you know, think about the ways that people are criminalized um, for their reproductive health uh, decisions. And, you know, how are we trying to change um, who those folks have access to to help represent them in some ways to make sure that they have um, representation that understands, you know, that, that they are making decisions in the context of their lived experience. So they're um, thinking about the, the full um, lives of their of their clients, but also, you know, for folks who aren't doing direct services or for or who are working for different populations to still understand that there is a role um, for law students and lawyers to play in, you know, um, advocating for um, the advances of, of reproductive health rights and justice and what are some of those um, tools and skills um, that we need to, you know, in some cases help uh, law students and lawyers unlearn um, from law school because, um, you know, because of the ways that we, that we are taught to think about, you know, our, ourselves and think about ourselves as, as the ones who have all the answers and, you know, that we have, um, that we're supposed to come into situations, you know, uh, with a certain uh, level of power and recognizing that actually we need to, to, to rethink how we are entering spaces, to think of, um, of ourselves as part of our communities um, and making sure that we are looking for those opportunities to connect um, back, back into our communities. So some of the trainings that we do, particularly with our law students, is helping them to understand things like mutual aid. Um, and again, how are you leveraging the resources that you have access to? How are you figuring out you know, who uh, may be in need of service and how to, to, to sort of make those connections. Um, but also in, in thinking about the, you know, understanding the history of how law has been used as a tool of oppression and recognizing that uh, moving forward, that, that people are more cognizant um, and so that they are, are, are understanding, you know, how the law is, is being, um, being used in certain ways. And so we do trainings to help people understand, you know, what is racial justice and how does that relate to reproductive justice and how does that relate to the law? What is economic justice? Um, and understanding, you know, really how people's identities um, and the different ways that they are perceived by society could impact um, their access to justice. Yeah, I think like you were talking about like being more like cognizant 
And it, it really made me think about, um, I, I've been talking to people a lot about like our journeys and how we've gotten to where we are, um, whether that's with like social justice or like um, identifying uh, ourselves in our queerness or like whatever. Um, I've just been talking to people a lot about like that journey. And it makes me think a lot about like, so for myself, like I grew up in, um, you know, small town in Ohio um, and I uh, didn't really know about any like social justice issues was like pretty much completely unaware of like the attacks on my rights on other people's rights on like how bad the world was I think I think back to like being in high school and even early college and just like not not really knowing how bad things were because I was never exposed to that. And, you know, when you're, um, when your family is very conservative, you, you don't get exposed to like all the negative things about conservatism. Um, and so like I got to college and like, I remember, um, in 2016, uh, when I was, I think like a junior or a sophomore in college, um, I like, came out as a supporter of Hillary because, like, um, I was, like, not wanting... I didn't... And I remember, like, it being a thing and I didn't want to tell people too soon because I was, like, worried about how people would react. And then later, um, like, I I think a lot about, like, how there were so many signs that I was queer in some way and then I didn't realize it until, like, I was about to graduate college. Um, And so, like, this, like needing to be cognizant of things. And um, I think, like, what I really appreciate is that this, like, making people aware that there are, like, problems that, especially coming from a place of privilege, you might not be aware of. And, like, there are places where you can use your power that, like, for you may seem like nothing, but, like, for someone else, like, that you taking those steps to educate yourself, you being able to, um, you know, say things in a different way to talk about things in a different way, just like changing your mindset around things can make a world of difference um, for those who don't have the same level of privilege. Um, so like that, that cognizance and then, and then thinking about like mutual aid and, and things like that, like just being able to, I mean, it, it feels like a very, um, uh, I don't, I don't know that I've talked about this with you, Gerald, but I know I've talked about it on the podcast before, but like um, I, I, you know, I have a background in religion, obviously. <laughs> I work for a faith-based organization. Um, but uh, I was a uh, practical theology and social justice uh, student. I, I almost said major, but <laughs> it was like my master's degree. So, um, and when I think about like mutual aid, um, I think a lot about like the basis in like the, the old church. And so like this idea that you're supposed to share everything with like those who are in your community and like when when someone needs something like the church is supposed to provide for them and then you know thinking about the law and thinking about like again these institutions that are supposed to be good but then are not doing that like it's a, like another instance of <laughs> we need to like go back to like what was the original purpose here or even cuz in some circumstances the original purpose was not good i mean our laws often based on like racist, sexist, homophobic things. Um, and so like going back to that, but like is not what we're going for. But thinking about like the principles that we want it to be based on. 
Yeah. I Um, think you're pointing to something that's really important, which is our values. mm -hmm. And that's something that um, is really important for us when we think about movement building, um, because at the root of movement building is people and being Mm -hmm. in community with folks. And, you know, thinking about our shared values, thinking about, you know, establishing trust with each other. And, you know, that's, you for me, it's something, um, you know, personally, I also grew up in Ohio, um, went to college in Ohio, and I think about some of those Midwestern values um, that I sort of grew up with and the ways that they still show up, you know, that you take care of each other, um, that you, you know, listen to each other and make space for each other um, and recognize that we do have different backgrounds and different stories, but that there are, we do share common values. And that part of our work with movement building is helping to kind of figure out where are those common goals, where are those shared values, and how do we meet people where they're at, um, and then you know move towards uh, more 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 collective values. Um, but it can be really challenging um, when there are there have been spaces that, in some cases, have been co-opted, um, and I think particularly the faith-based um, space um, has been a place where you know, as you mentioned, I think majority of people who identify as people of faith also identify um, as people people who are in support um, of reproductive health rights and justice. Um, but it hasn't, you know, that, that, that space has been sort of co-opted um, by a small group of very loud individuals. And I think, you know, personally for me, for a long time, I went away from organized religion in part because it seemed to be the source of so much oppression. And it wasn't until you know, I found um, a universal Unitarian or Unitarian Universalist um, that I recognize like, oh, actually there are more people who identify as people of faith who also have shared values that I do and do actually support um, support the things that I care a lot about. Um, and so that's why it's been so important to find community, um, find fellowship in other um, similar folks who have a faith identity and um, you know, that it's not mutually exclusive from also having um, a, a pro, you know, reproductive health rights and justice identity as well. Um, and so I think it really speaks to, um, you know, the the value of, of really figuring out where those shared values are um, and recognizing that there are a lot of, you know, faith practices and faith traditions that actually have a lot in common um, with, you know, um, people having autonomy, people having the ability to care for themselves and for their families um, and having the resources to do so. Um, and, you know, sometimes needing the support of other people and that that's part of our job and being in community with folks is helping um, to make sure that, that people have access to the resources that they need. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you were talking about Midwestern values, and then um, I was thinking about like this, the, like what you were just saying about like supporting each other and like being able to help other people when you can and like having the resources to do that for some reason when you said midwestern uh when you're talking about like ohio and being from the midwest and like making space to listen to people i kept thinking about like church potlucks and like like how you there's this uh there's this like request for people to bring food but if you don't bring food like that's okay like there's usually more than enough because like there are enough people who are able to do that that if other people show up and don't have food like that's okay and and I think a lot about like all of these like the the values behind some of these traditions that are in church spaces of like 
you know, you give your offering and you having these like potluck things. And I think about like all of the <laughs> little old ladies like my grandma who like um, just are always at the church and like caring for other people. And and that is like also a, a part of like community building. And um, I think like also a part of like that mutual aid thing, like this caring for each other and um and and that kind of thing. And when I think about like meeting people where they're at, like, um, I think oftentimes this is a thing that <laughs> I often struggle with on this podcast. And um, I talk about a lot in um, we have a restorative and transformative justice training. Uh, but like, I think oftentimes like we, uh, especially when it comes to like people in these groups, like, um, like lawyers or like um, people of faith, we might have this assumption that oh, because they're a part of this institution that has historically been not good for, like, reproductive health rights and justice and all of these things, like, um, having this assumption that maybe we wouldn't have shared values. But I think, like, coming with this expectation of, like, I I don't believe that, you know, you don't ever care about people, <laughs> you know? Like, I at some point, there is, like, a level of, um, of caring for each other that I think... I, I have am hard pressed to find a person who like doesn't have these kind of um, baseline values, but maybe has not had a conversation that has like brought it out. You know, if that makes sense. Like, um, I think that if I I often talk about how uh, if everybody had access to mental health care, like how much better of a world would we be in? Because like I genuinely believe that there are like people who are out here harming others or, um, I mean, the last time I think that, uh, we had our podcast, we talked about how here in Ohio, we have the ballot initiative that's going on and the state is actively, um, doing things to prevent that, um, ballot initiative from succeeding. Um, there is going to be a special election in August to try to raise the, um, amount of, uh, support that there has to be for ballot initiatives to 60%, which is a lot. Um, and, and, when I hear that, I think about, like, how... I'm like, who hurt you so bad that, like, when somebody tries to do something that you don't like because they're trying to care for themselves, you have to, like, work this hard, <laughs> you know? And so I think a lot about, like, how... Um, I think, like, hearts and minds work is really important and this kind of, like, movement building work is really important because, like, it, it's just, like, if if there is no mental health care for those people, then they end up harming others. And if there is nobody out there like training people and, and talking about like, um, I think about how us as staff members at If When How, like one of the first things that happens is we have um, a training around racial and reproductive justice being um, inextricably um, intertwined. And like, uh, I think like that is really important. And if, if nobody is out there having these conversations with people, then they end up um, intentionally or unintentionally harming others in ways that actually might be against their own values without them knowing about it. Um, and it's just like, um, I think really important work. And you, like you were, you mentioned um, that about the racial and reproductive justice, like intertwining. And I don't know if you'd like to share a little bit more about that, but I know that like that, that training, I also really love working at If What How. I'm very grateful to have ended up in this spot. Um, and that training for me was like, 
this is this is a really great place to be in um, because we're saying that out loud and making sure that it's um, apparent. So if you if you want to talk about that. Yeah, I think it's really important when we're talking about the concept of reproductive justice to be really clear about um, the inextricable link between reproductive justice and racial justice. Part of how the, the theory was, was developed um, and the tenets were, were developed was in part because specifically um, women of color, in particular Black women, were noting how you know, their experiences were not being fully represented, um, particularly by the civil rights movement or the women's uh, rights movements uh, back in the you know, 60s and 70s. Um, and you know that their unique experiences weren't being um, really fully acknowledged or, or represented in any of those places. Um, and so the the term itself was coined back in 1994 uh, by a group of 12 black women in Chicago. Um, and you know it comes from um, reproductive rights, social justice, that's where uh, the the combination comes from. And really what they were doing was, you know, using a human rights framework, um, centering the folks who are most impacted by oppression and recognizing the ways that, you know, given the history of reproductive coercion that has happened in this country, largely along race lines, um, they were understanding the ways that their full identities were impacting their access to, to reproductive health care. Um, and so by, you know, by acknowledging um, the, the sort of racial barriers that can come up, um, by recognizing some of the coercive practices that have happened in our country. Um, so just being really clear that, you know, um, there were many uh, forms of, of contraception that were tested on, on people of color, um, on, on Black women, on Latino women, on Indigenous women, um, without their consent, um, without their full knowledge of what was being tested that really had impact on their, their future fertility, um, and in some cases, you know, people were sterilized without their knowledge, um, and they were, that impacted their ability to have families in the ways that they wanted. And some of that was, you know, was was rooted in racism, was rooted in white supremacy, was rooted in the, this idea that only certain people should have the freedom to fully um, reproduce the ways that they want to, and that more often than not, um, that you know, people of color were denied having that full access um, to, to their reproductive lives. And that that is part of the history of reproductive justice. And it's still present today and it's still impacting um, the ways that people are able to access care. And that's not just about, you know, access to abortion and, and contraception, which are both um, really important things, but it also shows up in how people, um, you know, go through pregnancy, their, their birthing experiences, and their experience as parents, um, we see, you know, at, for an for a, as as bountiful of a country that we live in, our maternal mortality rates are abhorrent, and in particular for Black women, um, it is, you know, really harrowing um, experiences that that Black women have um, navigated, you know, their their birthing experience. Um, that you know, we have to we have to acknowledge that that race and racism plays a part in how some people are, re are receiving care um, <clears throat> in people's ability to parent the children that they have, you know, race and racism come into play. Um, who is being targeted um, by, um, you know, if, if they show up uh, at a hospital, for example, with a miscarriage um, or if there are complications during birth, um, 
that women of color and people of color are more likely to be surveilled by hospital staff, by nurses. Um, they're more likely to be, you know, turned into law enforcement um, if they're, for example, suspected of self-managing their abortion um, and are suspected of or suspected of using um, uh, alcohol or drugs or other, you know, um, substances during pregnancy. That you know, because of their identity, that puts them more at risk of criminalization. Um, so there's there's a you know connection there between their identity um, and the the type of care that they're receiving. Um, when we think about our our child welfare system um, and who is separated from their families, who has their parental rights terminated, um, you know that there are there are racial aspects there, there are identity aspects there. So. If we're thinking about the full range of, of reproductive justice, uh, which includes, you know, the right to have children, to not have children, uh, to parent the children we do have in safe and healthy uh, communities, and and the right to, to gender expression, you know, there is a link um, to race and racism, and and we have to be acknowledging that and understanding that to have a full sense of what people are navigating um, in their reproductive lives. Yeah, um, I, I just like. I think that this is like important stuff. I know it's like a little uh, off what I originally intended to talk about, but I think it's like a really important stuff to like have have out there. And I mean, I you were the one who gave this presentation to me when I first started, and so to to hear it from you and be able to share that with our listeners is like great. Um, but like I think like that aspect because it's not um for for many people again going back to that like um if you don't know then you don't you don't really know what you don't know um like if when that's not clearly named and you're not you know in this you're not a woman of color you're not a person of color who um has you know reproductive healthcare decisions to make um then you can not you can be oblivious and i i think about this in um we do a self-managed abortion in good faith training uh, every month. And in our training, one of the things that we talk about is um, what are reasons that people wouldn't want to go to a clinic. And, um, you know, I think the three that we mention are like they don't want to experience racism. They want to, you know, have control over their own environment or like they just want to be at home. <laughs> um and I think, like, this, it, I, it shouldn't be such a radical idea that, like, we want to have control over our own lives. Um, but I think, like, for people who um, are maybe not at threat <laughs> when, when if not feeling like, um, you know, they won't be listened to or heard at a doctor's office or um, who don't have this, like, background and history of people who look like them being harmed by healthcare professionals, it can be uh, difficult to to see that and um, or to to understand why a person wouldn't just go to a clinic. Like sometimes you, it's it feels better and safer and is be like when you're in a situation where you're, you know, gonna undergo any kind of pain. Like I would much rather be at home, especially like adding on the. The, the medical space is not necessarily safe for me. And yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we do as part of our trainings, um, you know, with our, our law students, legal fellows, lawyers, activists, is a values clarification exercise. And it's one of my favorite parts of our training, in part because we ask 
you know, we, we make statements and then we ask people, we tell them that they have to um, identify whether they strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Um, and we try to make them, you have to make a decision. You can't sort of be <laughs> neutral in that. And part of what happens, you know, almost every single time that I've done this uh, training, you know, people hear from other folks about what their decision-making process and it raises for them like, oh, I never considered that aspect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's not something, that's not something in my experience I have, have seen. And a lot of times it's related to their um, connection with the medical profession. And, you know, for some folks who have always had positive interactions with their doctors, um, that they are used to being listened to, they're used to be treated with respect, they are used to, you know, having their symptoms listened to and being able to get relief and get um, get what they need to, fe to feel better, it would never occur to them that for other folks, that's not their experience. Um, instead, you know, their experiences are more, you know, they're, they're treated with disrespect, um, that they aren't listened to, that, that you know, um, they are not seen as experts in their own bodies. Um, we are all experts in our own bodies. We know when, when things feel off and we should be trusted um, if we're raising issues with with medical professions, um, but there have been you know folks who have experienced um, you know not being not being um, respected, not being trusted about what they're feeling in their own bodies, and so they have a very healthy you know um, distrust of the medical system. And if, if that's something that you've never experienced, it you, you know as you said, it, it may never cross your mind that oh. Like people have negative experiences with health professionals. Um, we are are sort of taught to to believe that doctors have a lot of the answers that you know they've gone to school for a long time. Um, I come from a family where I have two doctors in my family. My mother is a pediatrician. My brother's an army doctor, so I have a healthy respect for um, for physicians. But also recognizing that sometimes you know in given situations there are have just been so many different examples, um, particularly related uh, to reproductive health. Um, where people are not respected, where people um, are not seen as, as you know, um, uh, agents of their own health. Um, and, you know, we see this a lot actually with contraception. And sometimes it's that, you know, a provider is focused on the efficacy of a particular method. Um, and so that for them, that's the most important thing. But for an individual, you know, they're, um, their, their risk calculation is a little bit different than a provider's right fee. Um, and so if you have, you know, somebody who is pushing, let's say like a, a, um, an IUD, an intrauterine device, mm -hmm. if they're not recognizing what all a patient is coming into the room with. Um, so for example, if you have somebody who, you know, in their family, um, you know, their grandmother or an aunt or, you know, some other uh, woman in their, in their family was, you know, um, was was part of of some of the challenging uh, reproductive uh, contraception development. So um, the issues that came with the Dalcon Shield, the issues that came with other implants, and have been told basically their whole life, like don't let a doctor put something into you that you can't take out. And so if that's what you know the perspective that they're coming in, and you have a, a medical provider who is pushing you know an IUD because that's the most effective, you know that has the highest efficacy rate. Um, if they're so focused on the efficacy rate, but they're not focused on what their patient is coming in with um, and in recognizing for that patient, you know, having something inserted in them that they can't remove or that, that can't easily be removed, you know, for them, that efficacy rate is zero because it's not going in their body. Um, and so you need providers to be thinking not just about, 
you know, efficacy rates, but also what is going to be effective for this person? What is their, what does their lifestyle look like? What are they coming into the space with? What are their concerns? Um, I know a provider who, because she has, has learned how to talk, you know, how to, how to, how to do contraceptive counseling more uh, collaboratively, um, in some situations, you know, just after listening to somebody's concerns, she's actually left. Um, so when you insert a, an, an IUD, there's little strings, metal strings at the end that usually the, the provider sort of clips back. But in some cases, she will leave those strings long enough that if a person needs to remove it themselves, she doesn't advise it. But, you know, she knows for that person that that actually is a way for them to feel more in control. Um, and yeah. it's, it's a way to, you know, to have this mutual goal, right? Um, but have something that works for both the provider and the patient. And so it's that recognition um, that people are coming into these spaces with, you know, a full lived experience, um, that they're not making decisions in a vacuum, um, that they're making decisions in the context of their of their full lives. And so, um, you know, having to think about all that is coming into the exam room with a person, all that, you know, all that might be impacting um, their decisions. And this is why it's important for folks to understand those histories, to understand, you know, what, you know, that, that it's not just this, this point in time that somebody is thinking about, that they're, they're, they're coming in with, with so much more. And so making sure that there are solutions, again, that are, that are mutually uh, beneficial, that are, are, you know, that you're, you're talking through what your shared values are, what your shared goals are. And I, that, again, like, this is just like, um, this, this same, like, these institutions that have been places of harm, like, don't have to be places of harm with, like, religion, with the law, with the medical field, like, and, and, um, that's why I'm, like, so happy to be in this space and to be a part of this work is just because I think there is so much potential for people to find more freedom, um, in, in places that, um, can be safe, um, that are, you know, not going back to any, like, risky things that may have originally been associated with SMA. Um, for anybody who needs clarification on that, again, we have our SMA training once a month um, about safe, you know, practices that people use. Um, but, like, I, I think that there is so much opportunity for these spaces to become places that people can feel in control. And hearing stories like that, like makes me excited about what a future could look like. Um, and even though, I mean, like, <laughs> the last year, the last, like, five years <laughs> have been, um, you know, really um, not great um, and have been really hard, um, hearing stories of people trying to make changes in, in the places that they can, in the ways that they can, um, I think is encouraging and, um, you know, is what keeps me in this work. Um, but um, that being said, um, it has been really great talking to you, Gerald. Um, and I have loved having you on the podcast um, and just really grateful that I get to <laughs> cross over my two worlds um, and and have that um, little moment. So if there's if there's anything you want to say or before we sign off, you can go ahead and say things. Yeah, I just, I really appreciate the perspective that you're bringing of, you know, making sure that, that people of faith understand, and more importantly, that, that um, people who are in this movement recognize that there are, are so many people who identify as, as um, people of faith who are supportive of this work. Mm -hmm. 
um, that that there's more of us um, than than people might realize, and recognizing the importance of um, people being able to bring their faith identity into their work. Um, there is so much work that is happening um, at different, you know, in in different faith communities around these issues. So recognizing that there are um, faith communities that are offering pastoral care um, for folks and other you know forms of guidance. Um, that there are a lot of providers, um, abortion providers and other reproductive health care providers who also identify as people of faith and are willing to to talk about how actually, you know, it is because of their faith that they are providing this care, not in spite of it. Um, and that, you know, that that they're they're that we're you're not alone. Like there, there's a lot of people who are are really, you know, making sure that um the way that that their faith has has shaped their values, particularly their values related to community and how we care for one another and how we share resources um, that are in line with, you know, um, reproductive health, life, and justice, that, you know, th those things aren't mutually exclusive and we need more folks, um, both from, from the faith community and um, from the reproductive community to, you know, to, to be, you know, um, out about their, their faith, out about, you know, their, their beliefs, because um, there are more of us. And the more that we are, talking about these issues, the more that people are seeing, you know, that people of faith are actually showing up in very important ways for this work and have been involved um, for a long time um, in this work um, that, you know, that, that folks see, um, that, that folks see us and, and, and see the ways that, you know, we are um, stepping into our faith identities and stepping into, you know, our, our other values and, and how they're coming through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think like the more, uh, the more that we're able to see that, like, I think the the nice part about being a part of this work is that um, I get to tell people that there's still hope, you know, like, not, <laughs> I don't like to use the phrase, like, not all whatever, but like, not all religious people, not all lawyers, not all doctors are like, you know, bad, you know, and I'm really encouraged by, you know, the people that I see showing up at the trainings that I do, um, which are not limited to just um, pastors. It's called SMA in good faith, but we don't, we don't, I mean, not everybody, it's not a requirement that people like practice a religion to come to our trainings. Um, and it's encouraging to me to see people like having these conversations and opening up that space so that they can be better in their field or they can just be better as a person um, to support other people. So anyway, um, I, Again, thank you so much for being here. It has been great to have you. And um, I will be back <laughs> in two weeks um, with another guest. So um, I will be back then. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Soul. If you'd like to hear more of our conversations on religion, abortion access, and all things repro, you can find all our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. For more content, training, and other information, check us out at faithchoiceohio.org.